0: I invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Revelation and not where you think you ought to turn it, Revelation 19, but actually turn it to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 to get us started. But the goal this evening is to do a review of where we've been so far in the book. And so to dip our toe into the water First, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then I will pray and we'll jump into how we're going to do this this evening. And before I read it, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. for the time is near. Beloved, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and so let's ask the Lord together to use his word to that end this evening. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit has spoken to the churches through your holy word. Lord, we acknowledge that Because of our remaining sinfulness, we are slow to hear and sometimes even slower to obey. For the sake of your beloved Son, have mercy on us now. Send the Holy Spirit to make your word effective that we might be quick to hear and quick to obey. Revive our souls, we pray, and draw us into deeper fellowship with you Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and into deeper and greater communion with one another, that the world may know that we are your disciples because of how we love you and because of how we love one another. We ask these things in accord with the will of Jesus, and therefore in his glorious name. Amen. Well, again, as we jump back into the book of Revelation, We've taken a break from it for quite some time, and as we've looked over these past weeks at the sacrament of baptism and how we're to understand that biblically, and now that we're jumping back into the book of Revelation, we thought it would be helpful as a refresher for all of us, and then for those of you who are just now beginning to attend to remember where we've been. Now, obviously, we can't do that exhaustively this evening. Otherwise, this sermon would be hours upon hours upon hours. So don't expect uh, a full exposition of the first 19 chapters of the book of Revelation this evening. But what you can expect, again, is is a reminder, a 30,000-foot overview, if you will, of where we've been so far in the first six cycles Of John's revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really how we're going to make this manageable and do a massive overview is we're going to highlight and look at these six cycles that we've covered so far in the book of Revelation. We didn't finish the tail end of chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Lord willing, we'll do that next week. And then we'll be ushered into the seventh and final cycle that begins in Revelation 20. But the goal tonight is to just give you some handles to grab this book with. And the best way that I know of to do that is to really look at the six cycles that we've covered so far. And so I encourage you as we look at these, to actually flip through the chapters so that you can be reminded of where we've been so far. And if something seems a little confusing to you, I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermons where we spent ample time explaining them. But tonight, as we jump back into Revelation, I hope that this proves to be a helpful overview of where we've been. And the reason I think looking at the cycles is going to be helpful is because John, in this book, he employs the literary device of recapitulation, recapitulation. And so what he's doing is he's recapitulating, reteaching you again and again in each cycle, the same time period, the time from Christ's first coming until his second coming, all the way until the end of all things, in each one of these cycles. He's explaining it to you and showing it to you with different symbols from the Old Testament, And there's also a different emphasis of this time period that he shows us again and again. But I hope as we go through these six cycles, you'll see how relentless John is in his message to the churches, his message to us. And really not just how relentless John is, but we know from whom this vision ultimately originated, God himself. And so it's very important that we understand what the message is, and looking at the cycles reminds us of that over and over and over again. I'm not going to give you the overall outline up front because it's six cycles, and so that's a lot of points to keep track of. But I hope that as we go through each one, it's really clear to you the breakdown. And if you have any questions about it afterwards, feel free to come up to me afterwards, or I'm happy to email you the breakdown that I talk about tonight. Having said that, let's look first at the first cycle. And the first cycle covers chapters 1, 2, and 3. And as we look at these cycles, we'll see that there are seven cycles, and then there are seven items or objects or whatever within each cycle. Some of them might not seem overly convincing to you. Some of them will be really clear. For example, in this first cycle, in chapters 1 through 3, we have seven churches. That's really what the emphasis is and the message that is given to us as we read the messages that are given to the seven churches. But having said that, if we look first at chapter 1, we see in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1 that John greets the churches to whom he writes. And he tells them why he's writing to them and what the content of this revelation is. It's a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 1 of chapter 1, we're given a really important key to interpreting this entire book. And if you go back to listen to the sermon series, you'll see that we spent a whole lot more time on this. But I just want to touch on this briefly. Look at verse 1 with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, To show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, that language there, he made it known, is easy to just skip over in the English. But in the Greek, it's very telling. Because in the original Greek, it literally says, he made it known through signs. He made it known through symbols. And so what we are to expect then as we walk through this book is that John is employing various Old Testament signs and symbols to us. He's representing spiritual realities to us through Old Testament symbolism and language. And so the point there is that our default, unlike most of the rest of the Bible, is to actually interpret this book symbolically. That's what John is telling us right off the bat, that the Lord made this known to him by his angel through signs and through symbols. And so we need to keep that in mind. John then greets the churches to whom he's writing. He blesses them in Christ. And then if we look at verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1, John is relaying to us and to his original audience that he was a prisoner for preaching the gospel. And he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. And while he was on the island of Patmos, imprisoned, he received this vision from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he actually sees a vision of Christ, which shouldn't surprise us because it's a revelation of him. And we remember that we see the glorified Christ where he's in the midst of the seven lampstands. And the seven lampstands represent the churches. And so we have this reminder right out of the book, Christ is in your midst He is with you through all that you are going to have to endure. Well, what is it that they're going to have to endure? Well, then if we look at chapters 2 and 3, we actually get the content of the letters to the seven churches. And these are seven historical churches here in chapters 2 and chapter 3. And the thing is that they're also meant to represent to us What the church throughout the ages, from the time of Christ's first coming until the end of all things, what we can anticipate we will experience as God's people. And so we see Christ admonishing the church and exhorting the church and calling the church to repentance and encouraging the church to persevere and remain faithful through persecution. And what we're to get from that, right, because this John clearly likes this number seven and what this number seven represents to us is this idea of fullness or completeness. And so these are the messages that Jesus has for the churches, how he encourages them, challenges them, exhorts them, calls them to repent and look to him in faith. And so as we look at these letters, brothers and sisters, we're to understand that these are meant for us as well. These letters to the seven churches encourage us to understand that in this interadvental period that we will be tempted at times to morally compromise with the world or believe false doctrine, compromise in our holding fast to the word of God or to wander from our love for God. And yet also, as we're reminded that that's what we can expect to experience, we're also reminded here by way of application that Christ is with us. He is in our midst to keep us and encourage us and call us through the preached word of his gospel ministers. He keeps us. And so we're to understand that even as Jesus overcame the world during his earthly ministry, because we're united to him by grace through faith, we too will overcome with him because he will Keep us. So that's the first of the seven cycles. Chapters one through three shows us the seven churches. Then we jump to the second cycle that begins in chapter four and then carries on through chapters five, six, seven, and then the first five verses of chapter eight. Now you may come up to me and be like, wait a minute, why does it bleed over in just to just the first five verses of chapter eight? Well, something that another literary device that John employs here is that some of these sections serve as interlocking sections in the book. And so they're both closing off the preceding cycle while simultaneously introducing the next cycle. And so, therefore, sometimes there can be some debate about where the cutoff should be. In the outline, but for our purposes, we're going to see the second cycle covering chapter four all the way to the first five verses of chapter eight, and we see here seven seals, the emphasis in this second cycle are the seven seals, and so we'll look at that, but where John first starts in chapters four and five is very important because John is in his vision taken up into the heavenly temple. And he sees the throne room of God. The earthly temple is but a type or shadow of the heavenly temple. And he's brought into the throne room and he sees God represented to him through symbols sitting on the throne and ruling and reigning over all things and worshipped for his work of creation and redemption. All creation is worshipping him. And that's symbolized for us by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And so they're praising him. And the throne is clearly the emphasis here in chapters 4 and 5 because John uses the term 17 times in these two chapters. And what he's highlighting for us is that everything that's going to happen to the church in this time between Christ's first and second coming issues forth from God's sovereign throne. It's not happening by happenstance. It's not chance. It's by his sovereign will that has taken place in eternity past and is now being worked out in time and space and history. And so he's worshipped for that. Then in chapter 5, Christ is likewise worshipped and is seated on the throne. And we're shown that Christ is worthy to take this scroll, right? At first, no one's found worthy to take the scroll. And so John weeps But Jesus is able to take the scroll. And why is he able to take the scroll? Because he's the lamb who was slain. He's the second Adam who conquered where the first Adam failed, who conquered where Israel failed, where you and I failed. And so he's able to take this scroll and open the seals. Now, what is this scroll? This scroll is the end time judgment of God that now will come upon the earth. And it's no surprise to us that the Son is the one who brings this about because Jesus tells us what? All judgment has been given to the Father by the Father to me. And so now we see him having conquered in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He's ascended the throne, and now he's bringing about these end-time judgments as he opens each one of the seals. Then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, we have him actually opening the seals. And each one of these seals unleashes a judgment upon the earth. And we're going to see this judgment again and again throughout the book. We already have seen it, but we'll review it again and again tonight. And the, the, what we're going to see, though, as we look at each one of these judgment sequences, is there's a different emphasis. And the emphasis here in chapters 6, 7, and 8 in this second cycle is that there is suffering inflicted by Christ upon the church And the church will experience suffering and persecution from their enemies. And yet Christ is with them to sustain them and to keep them. And so we'll see these judgments again and again with a little bit of a different emphasis as we continue to walk through our overview. But here in chapters 6, 7, and 8, the emphasis is on how we as believers in between Christ's first and second coming will suffer And so the first five seals that are broken take place between Christ's first and second coming. And then the sixth and seventh seals, when they're broken, they usher in the end of all things and the final judgment. Now, chapter 7 is particularly encouraging to us because it's this bit of this interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. And John is fond of doing this. He often takes a little break between the sixth bowl or the sixth trumpet and the seventh bowl or the seventh trumpet. And he does that here with the seals. And what's the vision that we see? We see the glorified saints of God, the 144,000, the great multitude from every nation. And what does this vision represent to us? All the saints of God, protected by him, kept by him, sealed with the Holy Spirit And so what John is reminding us of here is the fact that even though we will undergo great persecution and suffering, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so this seal of the Holy Spirit is a proof that we belong to King Jesus. Right in the ancient world, if someone received a letter, the way you knew it was authentic was the king took his signet ring and pressed it into hot wax and it was put on the letter. And then the recipient would say, "Yep, that's the king's signet ring. I know it's legitimate. And we bear that impression as we bear the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we're kept by the Holy Spirit through this time of suffering and loss and temptation. And so we ought to rejoice in that. And, brothers and sisters, as we just apply this to ourselves, we're to understand and expect that as Christ's church, as God's people, we will suffer. Christ promised, right? I suffered. I'm your master. No servant's greater than his master. And so, if I suffered, so will you. And yet, as we undergo that suffering, we ought to rejoice in the twofold reality that's represented to us here in this second cycle. First of all, who's sovereign over these sufferings that come upon God's people, upon the church? It's Christ. These sufferings come upon the church as He opens the seals. And so we ought to receive them. Yes, it's hard, but from his hand. And even as we receive those from his hand, we ought then to rest in the fact that he sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And so he will keep us. And so no matter what comes our way as God's people, we can know this. And so we ought to rejoice in this, even as the original recipients and original audience did. So we've looked at the first two cycles ...with the seven churches and the seven seals. And now we move on to the seven trumpets. And that picks up where we left off in chapter 8, starting in verse 6. And that carries us all the way through the end of chapter 11. And what we have represented to us here, the emphasis really is on the seven trumpets... ...that are blown by the seven angels. And again, just as a reminder, as we look at chapters 8 and 9 in particular... These judgments that come about as a result of the trumpets being blown, they are the same judgments that we already looked at in the first cycle and in the second cycle that come upon the earth between the first and second coming of Christ. We're just being shown them through different symbols or images and with a different emphasis. And so what's the emphasis here in this third cycle? The emphasis for us here is that God brings judgment upon his enemies. He is judging our enemies, brothers and sisters, if we have the eyes of faith to see it, even now. And that is represented to us in these seven trumpets. And so it shouldn't surprise us, if you remember, that the language that John uses to describe the suffering inflicted upon unbelievers as the seven trumpets are blown is Exodus language. It's the same kind of language that is relayed to us that's inflicted upon the Egyptians, When they're afflicting God's people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament. And so we have language here of hail and fire and blood and water being poisoned and darkness and locusts. And what John is showing us is just as God punished his enemies then, so he is punishing his enemies now. Now. In the first five trumpets, it's the punishment that's happening even now, brothers and sisters. And then in the sixth and seventh trumpet, it's the punishment, the final judgment that will happen upon them. And God will glorify Himself and protect us and show Himself to be just as He punishes His enemies both now and and at the end of all things. Then in chapters 10 and 11, remember I told you John likes to take a break between the 6th and 7th whatever? That's what he's doing here with the trumpets. And so in chapters 10 and 11, we have a little interlude here where in chapter 10, John is again recommissioned to continue his prophetic office, reminded of his prophetic calling. And there's echoes of Jeremiah's calling here, right? Jeremiah had a scroll that he ate that was sweet to his taste and bitter to his stomach. And that's exactly what happens to John. He eats a little book that is sweet to his taste. It's the word of God, and yet it's a word of judgment to unbelievers, and so it's rotten to his stomach. He doesn't like having to proclaim the judgment of God's enemies. Then in chapter 11, we have these two witnesses. And the two witnesses, there's also the temple, by the way, here in chapter 11 as well. And both the temple and the two witnesses represent the church. The fact that we are God's temple, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he will protect us. And that we have this prophetic calling to make God's word known, even as our enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil, the beast persecute us and cause us to suffer. And so we're reminded here of our prophetic office as the church. In between Christ's first and second coming, if through persecutions and sufferings, we are to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and call our enemies to repentance. And so, brothers and sisters, to apply this to us, what a great reminder of why we've been left here as the church, as God's people. Why, when He saved us, didn't He just take us up into glory? Why are we still here? We are still here to give witness to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and to prophesy, to proclaim the good news about God's call on unbelievers to turn to him in repentance. And as we do that, we will see him punish and judge our enemies and they will persecute us. They will hate us all the more, but we ought to be faithful To what God has left us to do, knowing that even if they kill us, He will resurrect us, right? Isn't that what happens to the two witnesses? And so ultimately our enemies will not prevail. And so that's what we see in the third cycle is these seven trumpets. So that's what we've seen. We've seen the the first three cycles of the seven churches and the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And now we're going to look at the fourth cycle, which begins in chapter twelve and carries us through the first four verses. Of chapter 15. Again, it bleeds into chapter 15 because it serves that interlocking function where it's closing off the previous cycle and introducing us to the next. Now, this is one where we have seven histories that are presented to us. And so I'll quickly walk us through those. If you want the breakdown more easily to follow, email me and I'll send it to you. But these seven histories in chapter 12 through 15, verse 4, the fourth cycle, reveal to us the spiritual realities behind the history that we see unfolding. The struggle between the city of God and the church and the city of man those who are opposed to God. And here's the thing, this shouldn't surprise us because we see this in the Old Testament in places like Daniel. There are spiritual realities behind those historical events that we see, those historical struggles unfolding between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so it's like the curtain is pulled back and we're shown these visions that show us what's taking place. And so if we look at chapter 12, for example, the first history that we have here is the history of the woman and the dragon. The dragon representing Satan himself who attacks the woman, persecutes the woman, pursues her. And the woman in the beginning of chapter 12 represents the old covenant people of God. And then the woman gives birth to a child. And there is the dragon waiting to snatch the child, to destroy him, to devour him. And of course, the child represents Christ, who in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension defeats Satan. And so the child is taken up, and the dragon does not conquer in that way. Then we're taken up into the heavens, and we see this battle between Michael, the archangel, and demons. And this is representing to us that Christ, represented by Michael, the archangel, defeating Satan and casting him down to the earth. This is what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And so he's bound the strong man. And so Satan's cast down from heaven to earth, and Satan is livid. The dragon is livid. So what does he do? He now pursues the woman again. And who is the woman this time? Representing the church. And she's in the wilderness, and he seeks to persecute her. But she is protected from all of his lies, from all of his persecutions. And so again, we're shown the spiritual realities behind our enemies trying to persecute us. Then in chapter 13, we have two visions of two beasts that persecute God's people. The first beast representing the ungodly state, and the second beast representing false teachers who seek to oppress God's people and seek to oppress The gospel message of the church. We see that happening today, don't we? The government trying to oppress that, false teachers trying to suppress that. Then, when we jump to chapter 14, we have three more visions, and I'll go through these very quickly. One vision is of the saints throughout all the ages. Again, the 144,000 showing to us that the Lord protects his people through this battle. We see that in verses 1 through 5. Then in verses 6 through 3, we have a vision of an angel warning unbelievers, both inside and outside of the church, to repent. And then we have another vision of the final harvest of the earth, the final judgment, in verses 14 through 20. Then we jump to chapter 15, and what we see here is this seventh and final vision in the fourth cycle. And it's found in the first four verses there of chapter 15. And what do we have? We have a vision of the glorified saints singing what we're told is the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And I just want to highlight for you very briefly, it's one song. It's not two songs. Why is it one song? Because the same Christ that conquered the Egyptians in the Old Testament is the same Christ who now conquers the flesh and the world and the devil on behalf of of his people. And what are the people of God doing? They're standing next to a red sea of glass glowing with fire to show that we've been brought through an even greater exodus than the Old Testament saints were. And so, because Christ conquered, right? Chapter 12, the church will conquer as well as we see in the entire book, but especially chapters 13 and 14 in the beginning of 15. And so, brothers and sisters, do apply that to us. We are to understand that all of our sufferings, all of our losses and trials and temptations, our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood. It's not ultimately against other human beings. It's against Satan and his demons. Now don't go to weird places with that. And you don't have to. You just need to be aware of these realities. God created all things visible that we can see and invisible. The heavenly realms. And there's Battles raging there. And what we need to understand about that battle is that Christ has already broken the back of Satan and all of his henchmen. The strong man has already been bound. And so let us not fear what they can do to us. Let us not give in to temptation to compromise. Why? Because compromise is not just with another image bearer of God who's opposed to God. That's bad enough. Compromise is with Satan himself. So know what you're doing when you sin. You're compromising with the devil. And also, who are you compromising with? A defeated foe. You're compromising with a loser. He knows he's going to lose. And we know he's going to lose. So why fear his threatenings? Wait instead until Christ comes and conquers him. And in the meantime, we... By persevering, conquer. That's how we are victorious, by enduring by God's grace through these trials and temptations. So we've looked at the first four cycles with the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven histories. Now let's look at the fifth cycle, which begins in chapter 15 where we left off in verse 5 and then goes all the way through the end of chapter 16. And what we have here are the seven bowl judgments. Very, very clear that there are seven bowl judgments here. And again, these cover the same time period, the inner advental period between Christ's first and second coming. And the emphasis here is the same emphasis that was there on the trumpets. The seven trumpets, you remember that judgment was upon God's enemies. And so here in the seven bowl judgments, the emphasis is on how God will punish and judge his enemies in this life. And at the end of all things, he shows himself to be a just judge. And so what we see then when we jump into verse 5 of chapter 15, where we left off, is that John sees these seven angels coming out of the heavenly temple with seven bowls that are filled with the wrath of God. And then in chapter 16, if you jump there with me, we actually see the angels pouring out their bowls. The first five bowls remind us again of the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians, boils, blood in the water, famine, darkness, and then the sixth and seventh bowls usher us into the end of all things again, and it ends just like every cycle ends with the final judgment. Now, what's interesting that we need to point out here is something that's highlighted for us in chapter 16, verse 19. So look at verse 19 of chapter 16 with me. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So what's the emphasis here? That God remembers Babylon. He remembers her, and he remembers her rebellion against him, and so he is going to punish her. And I think it's important to highlight that because as we transition then to the sixth and final cycle that we'll look at tonight, it's really an expansion of that sixth and seventh bull judgment. Why exactly is Babylon being punished? It's explained to us. And how is her end brought about? The sixth cycle is all about that. So I want to set the stage for it in that way. But before we jump to the sixth and final cycle that we'll look at tonight, again, just by way of application, We are reminded, brothers and sisters, that God is punishing his enemies now. And he will punish them as they ought to be punished unless they repent at the end of all things. And that's good news for us. That's good news for us, believers, because all of us as human beings, don't we have this innate sense of justice? When we see something wrong happening We go, that's unjust. Justice ought to be served. That's why we have the court system that we do. Now, justice, unfortunately, often isn't upheld in this world for a variety of reasons. But here's what we can know with absolute certainty. God is just. He is justice itself. If you want to know that something is just or unjust, you don't look at something outside of God. You look at him and his character himself. And so since he is justice, he will uphold justice. And so what that means is as we're persecuted, as we suffer, as we're sinned against, we don't have to bear that and become bitter and hateful towards others. We can be free of that because we can cast that upon the Lord, knowing he cares for us and knowing that he's going to uphold justice. Vengeance is not ours to take. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 verse 19. He says the Lord says vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so how are we to respond instead then? We ought to do what we are commanded to do. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23, following the example of Christ, we are to continue to entrust ourselves even as Jesus did perfectly to him who judges justly because we can know with absolute certainty that he will. So what are we to do then? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you and let go of bitterness because God himself will right every wrong. No doubt we should seek justice insofar as we can in this life, but it's not probably going to happen. And so we look to the Lord knowing that he will uphold that which is just. And in the meantime, he's called us to remain faithful to him. So we've looked at the first five cycles with the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven histories, and the seven bowls. And now we'll look at the last cycle that we've almost covered all of this cycle through our study We just got the tail end of 19 left, but let's look at the sixth cycle that covers chapters 17, 18, and 19. And this is probably the one cycle that you go, I don't know if I see the seven things that you're seeing in this text, and I'm not going to fight you hard on it, but some commentators say that they see seven songs of woe or doom concerning Babylon's downfall. You'll find six of them in chapter 18 and one of them in chapter 19. If you want me to send you what those references are, I'm more than happy to do so. It's not a hill I'm willing to die on, but I do think it's interesting nonetheless. Now, we already mentioned that this sixth cycle really expands on the sixth and seventh bull judgment that concluded the previous cycle, the fifth cycle. And so what we're shown here then is the judgment of Babylon why she is judged, and how the Lord orchestrates this. And so if you look at chapter 17, we see that Babylon is represented or symbolized to us as a prostitute. And so Babylon represents to us the unbelieving world who has allured or seduced the unbelieving nations into idolatry to worship false gods. And the way that she does this is by having an alliance with the beast, who represents ungodly government in opposition to God. But then chapter 17 closes in a rather interesting way. You've got to love it when scripture gives you a great plot twist. And the plot twist is that the kings of the earth end up actually rebelling against Babylon And there is this civil war that ensues, and then Babylon and the nations end up destroying one another. They end up devouring themselves. And so this is how the Lord has brought this about. He's orchestrated this, and so the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people end up actually devouring one another, which I think is so fitting, right? Isn't that what sin does? It just destroys anything that's good. And so that's exactly what we see happening here. Then in chapter 18, we have a variety of songs that are sung here concerning Babylon's fall. You have heavenly voices singing of why Babylon was punished and warning God's people not to be in alliance with her. We have songs that her followers are singing as they mourn her downfall because it affects them economically, it affects their comfort, it affects their pleasures. And then in chapter 19, we have all of the saints in heaven erupting in praise and thanking God for justly punishing Babylon. And then the sixth cycle closes. We haven't looked at this yet in verses 11 through 21, but we'll look at it next week. We have Christ as the conquering king arriving on a white horse, and he vanquishes all of his enemies. And then after that, We'll look at the seventh and final cycle in chapters 20 through 22. And so I know that was a whirlwind and you're like, whoa, that was a lot to take in. But here's what I hope you're walking away with it. I hope what's crystal clear, what's crystal clear in each of these cycles is that the same information is essentially being given to you. That in between Christ's first and second coming, the church will suffer. And yet, who is this ultimately a revelation of? It's ultimately a revelation of Jesus in all of his glory, caring for his bride, caring for his people, protecting them, causing them to persevere, calling them to repent, moving them with conviction by the Holy Spirit, causing them to endure whatever losses they incur. And so brothers and sisters, we ought to rejoice in this and rest in this. But here's the final question that I kind of want to answer. We look at this series of cycles, and we may ask ourselves, and I think it's a question worth asking, what is the pastoral reason for ultimately the Lord employing through his servant John, through the angel, this idea of recapitulation, showing us the same thing again and again, the same realities, using different symbols, using different Old Testament language, and with different emphases, but showing us the same thing. And I think there's ultimately two really good reasons for that. First of all, the Lord Jesus knows us perfectly. And he knows that in our fallen state, which we are still fallen, even though we're a new creation, we still battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil. He knows that even as we are still fallen, we are so slow to believe, aren't we? Doesn't he say that to his disciples? You're slow to believe, and we still are. And so it's as if he comes alongside of us and says, let me show you again. And again. And again. And again. So in our sin, he shows us more grace. In our unbelief, he's patient with us. And he causes these truths to wash over us again and again and fill our imaginations with a variety of symbols and visions so that they might grip us deeply and we might live In light of their realities. But second of all, and probably most importantly, you know this if you've ever experienced this. I think the reason Jesus employs this literary method of recapitulation is because when we're suffering, it is really, really hard for us to focus, isn't it? It is really hard when we're in pain to take in a lot of information, and so if you've ever walked somebody through a period like that, or you've ever walked through it yourself, you know that you could only, you've only got so much brain capacity to take in during a season like that. And so you've got to take in little chunks and be reminded of the same things over and over and over again. Well, what are we being promised here? We as the church will suffer. And so Jesus, knowing that, comes alongside of us and says, Let me show you again, my glorious bride. Let me show you again these wondrous realities that I've brought about. I know you can't see it, so let me show you again how I'm caring for you, how I love you, what I'm up to in history. And so, brothers and sisters, as we suffer, let us sing the praises of Christ. Let us focus on who He's revealed Himself to be in this glorious revelation and let us rest in His care. And concern and love for us. And let us wait patiently for the return of our glorious King, knowing that He both comforts and keeps us as we suffer with Him and for Him. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so thankful for your kindness towards us in giving us this revelation. There's a lot to take in tonight, but Lord, I pray that the central truth of how you, Christ, care for us would be so clear in our minds and how you glorify yourself, Christ, in all that happens in the life of the church and how you care and love and provide for her. As we come now to the Lord's table, to what you've instituted, Christ, we pray that we would repent of our sin, look to you in faith, And understand that we have communion and fellowship with you right now. And so may we come expectant, come knowing that we need grace, and may we receive it from your hand as we commune with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with one another. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.